Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan and rational and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined today by my good buddy, Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the Politics Guys, Ken. Hey, thanks, Trey. Well, Ken, I thought that we would start our first our first real show of 2021, because last time we, we basically let Michael horn in on us. Uh, you know, we, we, we were getting to do all the cool stuff. And then he comes in, he takes over. <laughs> no, no. But in all honesty, uh, kind of our first duo show uh, that we would get to do something that we did just about a year ago. We get to kind of tackle the impeachment part two. Uh, I mean, don't you think it's maybe a little bit uh, appropriate that we have the impeachment part two in the same year that we're getting Godzilla versus Kong. I just, just your early thoughts on that. Any, <laughs> I'm only just learning that now. I didn't know that we had Godzilla versus Kong. It this is year, coming so to... to a theater on HBO max near you. Uh, and I, I, right now I can just tell you, I won't be watching that. Uh... <laughs> but the out, the outcome is probably more predictable in the impeachment though. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Kong has to win. I mean, that's just that's the rule. No, but, uh, you know, the impeachment part, too, I think that's what we really need to hit here. And as a matter of fact, last week, there was kind of signs that things might be going differently. As a matter of fact, last weekend, as the last week's show was going forward, there had been some reports circulating uh, that McConnell was actually privately lobbying Republicans to convict Trump. And I was a little I was happy about that a little bit. I thought that was it was just a, a unique development. Well, what sources suggested at the time is that Republicans, McConnell among them, saw the only path forward uh, was to convict Trump, because otherwise you're going to destroy the Republican Party, in this case, not from within, but from without. And it was kind of telling this past week, as neither McConnell nor any spokespersons for McConnell uh, came out and suggested that those reports were wrong. In other words, they let them stand. And that that, that gave a pretty good suggestion that that really, in fact, was the position of McConnell. Now, this week, though, uh, Rand Paul used a unique, not often used, privileged constitutional point of order uh, to kind of get Republicans on the record about the impeachment before the impeachment. It was, in all honesty, it was a pretty brilliant tactical move. Um, the argument was that it is unconstitutional to go through in an impeachment trial for an individual who no longer holds office, in this case, Trump. And he actually said this past uh, Thursday that the moment that really crystallized it for him was when he found out that the chief justice was not going to preside. And that signaled to him that really the whole thing was a farce. Now, what Rand Paul here is referring to is Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, which states, quote, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for the, that purpose, they shall be an oath or affirmation 
When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Now, of course, again, Democrats are implicitly arguing that Trump is no longer a president, and therefore you don't need the Chief Justice. So I'm, I'm kind of curious just to start with is, one, what do you think about the ability to impeach an individual, Trump, who's not seated? And two, do you agree uh, that the chief justice is not needed to try a former president if you think the answer to one is yes? So I want to start there. What do you think about that? Yeah. So on the first question, um, I'm, I'm on record and I'm, I'm part of these proceedings in a way because I am a signatory of the uh, the scholars letter that the, the House Dems relied on um, that uh, the, the, the uh, ex-president uh, is subject to um, impeachment uh, because of uh, the uh, possibility of disqualification. So that it's it, impeachment is, is mainly but not exclusively about removal, uh, but it's also about uh, disqualification. Now, I want to ask um, you about that because I, I, I knew yeah. That. But I want you to you know I want you to say that I know, I know everybody doesn't know that, but one of the one of the counter arguments from other constitutional scholars is that it's in that portion of the Constitution in Article Two is not about either or. Uh, the Constitution says remove and disqualify, and so they would say, wait a second, you're saying that it's an or, but the Constitution clearly says and. So could you talk a little bit more about why you think? qualification can be separated from removal, uh, given that language in Article 2. Yeah. And first, when you said other constitutional scholars, you know, that's right. But I, I think it would help a little to quantify, you know, I think 90 percent of constitutional scholars agree with me on this and and hundreds of them sign this letter. And it's probably only about 10 percent um, that would go the other way. And the reason I think the the, the you see such a lopsided um, um, numbers um, among uh, um, constitutional scholars is that even a lot of um, conservative constitutional scholars had sort of already committed themselves to the position that uh, ex-presidents can be impeached when they were actually advocating for the impeachment of Bill Clinton uh, after he was uh, out of out of office. So um, so there's, a, you know, I think so on the on the, the section in um, Article uh, um, Article two that you mentioned, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, th- 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 all that really says is that um, if uh, uh, an officer um, is impeached and they're in office, then they shall be removed from office. So at a minimum, um, if someone's in office when they're impeached, then they, they must be removed they're, if they're convicted. There's no option not to remove them um, if they're convicted. Um, but but that, uh, that, that part only applies to people who can be removed from office. Um, so it says that the president, uh, the vice president and all civil officers shall be removed from office um, on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other crimes and misdemeanors. But that could be read either way. It could be read logically to mean, well, nobody can be impeached um, if they can't be removed. Um, but it could also logically be read to, to, to say that um, anyone could be impeached. And um, if they're actually in office when they're impeached um, and they're convicted, then they, they must be um, removed. But that, but that either of those readings is possible. But the historical reading has been um, the, the one that allows for uh, uh, post um, post-office post holding uh, impeachment because it's happened twice before. Mm-hmm. Um, Why don't you talk uh, about uh, once, at least one of those? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. The very first impeachment ever um, is a fun one to talk about um, because it, it involves um, the framers. Right. So in 1799, we had the very first impeachment ever. Uh, many of the, the, the Congress members and senators who were involved in that uh, were also involved in ratifying the Constitution. So they should have had a pretty good understanding of, of what was permissible. Well, now, as a matter of fact, weirdly, I mean, one of, when you think constitutionally, and I know this is an area where we kind of overlap, you think about that first Congress is almost being kind of constitutional uh, convention part two, right? I mean, the precedents getting set, set in that first Congress is oftentimes considered to be almost like uh, the, uh, a little bit like the constitutional convention because you have a lot of overlap there, correct? Yeah. Now, now, admittedly, this was the fourth Congress. It wasn't the first Congress. Oh, so this me. was seven, yeah, 1799. But I agree with you. The first Congress would be more, even better evidence. Yeah. We didn't have an impeachment until 1799. So we didn't have one in, in 1791. But um, Senator William Blount was uh, impeached um, and he resigned um, uh, as soon as he was impeached. He didn't wait around for the trial. Um, and at the trial, um, they ended up acquitting him on the grounds that a senator is not an officer of the United States and that senators are not actually subject to um, impeachment. Um, uh, senators are subject to expulsion, but that's a different procedure. And and so that was the basis of his acquittal. But um, nobody raised the issue that he'd already resigned. That was just something that didn't come up at all in the, in the Blount um, impeachment. Um, and the same thing happened again. Uh, in uh, uh, 1876, when um, Secretary, when President Grant's uh, Secretary of Defense William Belknap was impeached, he actually resigned even before he was impeached in the House. So he was impeached in the House uh, after he had already resigned, and he um, uh, was acquitted in the Senate um, by one vote uh, on the merits. Um, although there was a majority vote um, in the Senate to remove him um, and disqualify him, uh, even though he'd already quit, but it wasn't quite the two-thirds vote. Uh, but both of those proceedings um, went forward with a majority of the House and, and a majority of the Senate um, not seeing a problem with um, removal, uh, I'm sorry, with impeachment of people that, that had already been removed. And, and finally, you know, in a handful of the subsequent federal judicial um, uh, impeachments that have happened over the years, um, every time there was uh, disqualification from future office holding, which has happened just a handful of times, uh, that's always been on a separate vote. So they first vote to convict and remove. And then, you know, th that, that vote does remove the officer. So by the time they vote to disqualify, now this may only be five minutes later in those cases, but mm -hmm. But by the time they vote to disqualify, they're already voting to disqualify someone who's already been removed from office um, for from future office holdings. So at least formally, every disqualification vote that's ever taken place has involved a disqualification vote for someone that's already been removed from office. So then let's move on to that second part of that question, which is what about the uh, the position that the fact that the chief justice isn't uh, presiding is a is a problem now? I mean. In, in Article 1, it does appear that it says when, you, when it's a president uh, and not former president, but there seems to be an indication by Rand Paul and some others that even for former presidents, the chief justice should be involved. Now, what do you say about that portion of it, uh, about the, in this particular case, the chief justice wouldn't be presiding? And do you think that that, that kind of implicit, look, Trump's no longer a president, therefore the Constitution doesn't apply, uh, that portion of Article uh, 1 no longer applies to him. What, what do you think about that? Well, I'll say, I'll answer that on two levels. Um, one is, I, I think, as with the other um, provision that we just talked about, 
um, both readings are plausible readings, right? So I'm not going to say that the reading you just gave is implausible, um, but I'll just say the the countervailing reading is similarly plausible that um, the president of the United States is Joe Biden. And therefore, mm-hmm. the president of the United States is not the person who's being tried. And therefore, the, uh, the the clause that says when the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside um, does not apply because the president of the United States is not being tried. So I think I think that's equally as plausible a reading as the reading that you just gave. And then in terms of the real question then becomes who decides. And I think it's it's absolutely clear that the Senate's interpretation governs here and that, there, that, that it's really up to the Senate to decide that. In fact, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case in 1993 called uh, Walter Nixon versus the United States, not Richard Nixon. But Walter <laughs> Nixon, Walter Nixon was a federal judge who was uh, impeached and and ultimately removed. And when his impeachment trial went to the Senate, um, the 100 senators decided they didn't want to waste their time hearing it. So they they actually appointed a a panel of three senators to hear it and to make a report to the rest of the senators. And then they just voted based on the report, but they didn't attend the trial. And uh, Walter Nixon uh, took that case to the U.S. Supreme Court and argued that um, that's unconstitutional because he's got a right to be tried by the whole Senate. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, um, no matter whether he's right or wrong, um, what's even more clear than the answer to that question is that courts cannot um, intervene and tell the Senate what kind of procedures to run because impeachment is supposed to be a political proceeding and not a, a legal proceeding. And because the Senate is given the sole power to try uh, impeachments, um, that disputes about these kind of questions have to be resolved in the Senate and, and not by the courts. So as a practical matter, you know, no matter whether Rand Paul's reading is right or no matter um, whether my reading is right, um, and I do think both sides have plausible arguments there. Um, the, the one thing that's super clear is that uh, it's a majority vote of the U.S. senators that are going to get to decide which one is right. Now, before we kind of move forward a little bit in, into the story in a different angle, it's, it's, inter- it's interesting to me. So I have often in the past, I have liked a lot of things uh, that Senator Paul has done. But I have to say that recently, in a lot of ways, he seems to have just become kind of a an outcrop of Trumpism, which is bizarre for somebody who is purportedly trying to be libertarian. As a matter of fact, as you were kind of giving that argument for plausibility, you know, the the plain reading of Article 1, Section 3, to me, seems that if you're really trying to be that kind of originalist, I'm not sure how you get from when the president of the United States is tried when, when it's not the president of the United States, again, not that you couldn't have plausible readings, but maybe just not in the way that I would have anticipated um, Rand Paul to be interpreting the Constitution. It is unique, and we're going to talk more about this later in the show, but I have found it um, kind of disheartening the number of individuals, uh, and this is something I've mentioned before, who seem to be very willing to go down the Trump populist vein to, to prop him up, even to the to the point of kind of contradicting, I think, some better ideological positions that they've they've had in the past. Did, did you get any of that feeling here when you were looking and reading about kind of Rand Paul? This, this seemed to kind of stick out to me as being different from early arg- earlier arguments that he's made ideologically and constitutionally. 
At least for, that, that was that has been my reading this week. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of weird uh, up is, up is down type paradoxes going on. I mean, the fact that um, Rand Paul uh, outmaneuvered Mitch McConnell yeah. uh, in terms of uh, Senate parliamentary procedure, uh, you know, whoever would have thought that could happen <laughs> either, right? But, yeah, uh, but he certainly did. But uh, um, I, you know, I, I mean, I think I, I have some sympathy for his textual reading of that line, even though I don't agree with it. Um, I, I I could see making the argument that um, well, of course, although Trump is not the president of the United States today, um, he is being impeached for conduct that um, uh, he, he engaged in when he was the president of the United States. And in fact, when he was impeached, he was still president of the United States. So I, I could see arguing that that applies. I, I really don't think there's a clear right or wrong answer from the text there. But um, what I do think is, as I said, is, is clear is that um, the Senate gets to decide what the right reading of the text is, when, and it is ambiguous. In terms of the libertarian and authoritarian thing, which I think you also raised, um, it is kind of strange to me, um, you know, at least as strange as that Rand Paul could out, outmaneuver <laughs> uh, Mitch McConnell on parliamentary procedure. Um, that Rand Paul, who's made his brand on being a, a libertarian, and in fact, a somewhat maverick type libertarian, um, is is really um, uh, now kind of trying to position himself as someone who is uh, a loyalist to uh, an authoritarian uh, uh, president. Um, you know, but both the, the loyalism goes against kind of his maverick brand, and the I think I think of Trump as an authoritarian, which is sort of the opposite of a libertarian. So, I, yeah, I am a little puzzled by that, but I, I think it can maybe be explained by. Um, you know, Rand Paul uh, represents the the state of uh, Kentucky. Um, he is very popular in Kentucky, but you know, so is Donald Trump. And I think um, you know he probably does uh, uh, elicit some uh, political benefit with his own constituents um, from uh, exhibiting some loyalty to uh, Trump here. And I think he's also making a bet on which which side is going to prevail um, in this battle for the future of the Republican Party. Well, you know, and, and as you said there a minute ago, you know, we're kind of very surprised that, you know, who would have thought that Rand Paul is going to end up outmaneuvering Mitch McConnell? You know, we, we've spent a bunch of time now talking about kind of the constitutional issue at stake. I want to kind of sh uh, change gears just a little bit and talk about the political implications, because, again, as you noted, it's up to the Senate to decide how this it's a political question. So on the on the political side, the, the Paul vote really does kind of serve as a benchmark as to whether or not there was enough votes to impeach. And that really appears to not be the case since this past week, the Senate voted 55, 45. Um, to proceed. So although it's going to move forward, uh, it falls well short of the votes needed uh, to <clears throat> convict Trump. And further, it showed that there was kind of a, a switch on a few people's uh, positions. So even though, as I had noted a minute ago, that Mitch McConnell was kind of pushing and agitating potentially for a conviction, uh, McConnell will end up voting against uh, the impeachment uh, proceeding moving forward, in other words, arguing it's unconstitutional. So he would vote with Rand Paul. And so further this week, it looks like Democrats kind of see the writing on the wall and they were kind of rooting to get this whole thing done with quick. They want to kind of get it done in a week, and, week or so so they can move on to other business. So what do you read about some of this shift? I mean, you have McConnell very clearly kind of coming forward on conviction. Uh, he gets outmaneuvered. Uh, procedurally on Rand Paul, but he kind of quickly falls uh, in line behind Rand Paul. It doesn't seem like he's going to continue to push forward for a conviction anymore. Do you think that Rand Paul was the orchestrator of all of that? Or do you think this is just a convenient moment for McConnell to kind of evolve a little bit? I mean, this, that's a lot of switching in just about, you know, uh, six and a half days. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, first I'll say um, I, I never thought removal was a possible endgame here. And uh, I think Rand Paul, um, you know, flexed his muscles and made that clear uh, to everybody much quicker. But I, I never thought that um, uh, there were going to be the votes to remove. I interpret what McConnell had been up to over the past few weeks um, more as floating trial balloons than as really um, working hard to ensure uh, removal. I, th- I think McConnell was kind of working behind the scenes. I think he would have liked to um, um, possibly go with a, a vote for removal if if that's where the center of gravity of the um, Republican Party was. And, and I think he was trying to create a space where Republicans could um, indicate that they might be willing to move in that direction. Um, but I think when that didn't happen, McConnell never was um, going to get that far out ahead of the rest of the Republicans. And most of the reporting that we heard about, oh, McConnell is open to impeachment. McConnell is telling other senators it's OK for them to vote to remove. I mean, all of that was, um, you know, deep background sourced stuff. McConnell didn't make any public statements like that. Really, the one and only public statement he made was um, during the um, uh, uh, during dur- during the uh, vote on the um whether to count the um, electoral ballots or not, mm-hmm. uh, but he didn't. He didn't really make public statements about impeachment. So I, I think he was open to, um, and maybe even hoping that the Republican Party would move. But I don't think he was ever committing himself to it, and I don't think the votes were ever there. And he certainly will vote um, against uh, uh, removal. Um, I'm not even sure all five who voted against Rand Paul's uh, um, motion will, will vote for removal. I think I think the removal vote might end up um, 51, 52, 53. It might not even get to 55. To me, the political implication of that, which I've always thought, um, is that there's no point doing this unless, unless the Dems are willing to make a very, very big production of it for the purpose of really graphically uh, educating the American electorate on all the reasons that Donald Trump should be removed, mm-hmm. you know, with tons of witnesses and have it go on for weeks. Um, I, I think that could have some value. But I think another um, I- impeachment like the first one, um, where it was McConnell that was able to prevent um, anything like that from happening, you know, it made the whole thing kind of go by in the blink of an eye and produce a, a acquittal at the end. Um, I, I see no value to the Dems in that. I think if, if they're not really willing to milk this for all it's worth, I, I don't really know what they're doing. No, as a matter of fact, it was uh, bizarre a little bit to think about just a year ago that I was you know, in D.C. for the you know for the trial in uh, in, in 2020 uh, and, and watching it. Um, well, you know, I think Ken, we might be time to move to our second story, but before we do that, we're actually going to take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to take a look, and Ken and I are going to talk about the organization of the Senate. Uh, and some of the maturations that are going on there. And once again, kind of focus in on McConnell. So we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and we're going to chat about the organization of the Senate. Well, Ken, our next story is also uh, related to the Senate, in this case, procedures. And as I noted before the break, um, we want to talk a little bit here about the organizational proceeding of the Senate. Now, normally, the House votes on its procedures every two years after an election. And that's because the House considers itself a temporary body, because every two years, all of its members are reelected. Now, in the Senate, though, the Senate rules considers itself a permanent body because only one third of it goes up for an election in any particular cycle. But now, as we previously mentioned on the show, the Senate is currently in a deadlock. So they need an organizational vote that crosses some party lines so that they can organize committees, so they can organize the rules of the Senate 
when no one party has the clear winner. Now, earlier this week, McConnell was filibustering this uh, uh, procedural organizational vote uh, because he wanted to ensure, ironically, that it forced the continued existence of the filibuster. He didn't want to go along uh, with the previous version because it didn't say anything about the filibuster. He wanted to make sure the filibuster was would exist. Now, Democrats, although there, there seemed to be a, a number of Democrats who did not want to end the filibuster, they didn't want to include the language that the filibuster couldn't be uh, debated because they saw that as being problematic. So there's not really enough votes to end the filibuster. Uh, But I I will say from a lot of corners on the left, I think that there's a lot of hope that there might be some move in that direction. Uh, The Atlantic this week, for example, Ken, uh, called ending the filibuster, quote, the decision that will define Democrats for a decade, end quote. So what do you think about this set of moves from McConnell, right? He he filibusters it. Now he backs down. Is he backing down because he doesn't think Dems can move forward with it? Uh, why don't we start there? Yeah, I mean, I've got to speculate a lot here. I've, I've been thinking about this and I'm not sure any of these answers are right. So I'll just toss some <laughs> ideas out there. But without uh, without any uh, imprimatur that, that I'm sure I'm right about this or anything. But I, I, I think um, Probably one thing that both Schumer and McConnell were thinking uh, was that if the Dems are going to move to uh, break the filibuster rule, they're not going to do it immediately. Um, They're going to wait until there's a popular piece of legislation supported by both Dems and Republicans in the in the general uh, population, uh, bipartisan support in the general population, but that the Republicans are filibustering. So let's say it's something like um, the two thousand dollar checks that that Biden actually promised um, when when the Georgia Senate races were going on. So. If, if, if the Dems want to actually pass this legislation to give out these $2,000 checks and uh, there's a majority vote there that would do it, but but not a filibuster proof majority and the Republicans are, are filibustering it, um, I think that's the kind of context that both McConnell and Schumer are thinking, well, that's when the Dems are going to move to break the filibuster rule because the public will like that if they break the filibuster rule for the purpose of getting these $2,000 checks out to everybody. So I think McConnell is, you know, anticipating that and and saying, you know what, I'd rather make them break it now if they're going to break it because, um, you know, it's not attached to something popular. It's not attached to something popular. And it actually undermines Biden's message of unity. um, If the very first thing out of the box that the Dems do in the Senate is just, you know, break the filibuster rule to end bipartisanship. And it's not even attached to any particular piece of legislation that anybody cares about. So I think McConnell's thinking he's got maximum leverage right now where there's a cost in messaging to the Dems uh, to do it and where there's nothing really there that the public, you know, wants to see enacted. So I think I think maybe McConnell was thinking the Dems are going to do this anyhow, and I'm going to force them to do it right now, which will inflict maximum political pain on them rather than later when they'll probably, you know, have an easier time politically doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 I think I think maybe what happened is um, that, you know, Schumer couldn't actually do it. He didn't, he didn't <laughs> have the votes. Right? He didn't have the votes to break the filibuster right now because uh, at least Manchin 
Emma are out there saying, you know, we're not going to do it. And so, you know, my sense is that Schumer is thinking, well, how can I even deal with this situation that I can't organize the Senate without breaking the filibuster? I can't break the filibuster because I've got senators that don't want to uh, break the filibuster. Seemingly, that leaves McConnell as the majority leader, not the minority leader. Right. Republicans are in charge of, of most of the committees right now. In fact, I think the only way Dems had taken over any committees was if um, by now more Republicans than um, than Dems on a particular committee had failed to return um, from the previous con- Congress. There may have been a few committees like that, but the Republicans were starting with at least a one-seat advantage on every committee. So, um, so most of the committees, they were going to keep that one-seat advantage if there wasn't a reorganization. And the new senators, um, uh, uh, Warnoff and Warnock and Ossoff and, and and the new senator from California who replaced Harris, um, they're not even seated on any committees. And and so so McConnell's still the majority leader. Well, I take it that probably what happened is that, that Schumer said, OK, well, then we're done with committees. Um, the Senate has always operated on through the committee system, but the, the, the Dems did have a majority on the floor. And so um, there are procedures where a majority can can bring bills up to the floor without them getting voted out of committee. Um, and I, I suspect that Schumer was just deciding that that's what they're going to do, that committees are not going to play any role in the legislative process, this um, this this uh, this Congress. And, 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 and that's where we're going to be. The Republicans are going to have majorities on all the committees and nothing's going to come through committees anymore. And uh, um, and I think that might have been what caused McConnell to back down. What, what do you think of that theory? That's not a bad theory, uh, but I mean, this, I think, leaves kind of a, a question open that maybe we can tackle better, and that is, so what do you think about the filibuster itself, Ken? I don't think that it's going to be gotten rid of, actually. I think that um, the Manchin's position, I think, is is pretty strong. Um, and I noticed, you know, one of the bills I thought might be the, the one that would do it would be uh, the $15 an hour minimum wage, because mm-hmm. an awful lot of Dems want to see that. So I was thinking, you know, that that's a bill that probably can't be done on reconciliation, that is going to be filibusterable. Um, and there's a lot of uh, um, voters who want that, including a fair number of Republican voters. So there, there's some bipartisan support in the general electorate, although not in the Senate, um, for, for $15 an hour minimum wage. I thought maybe they would do that. But I noticed um, there's 38 Democratic co-sponsors for the, the, the $15 minimum wage bill now, but Manchin's not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I, you know, I, I, don't see, I don't see that the votes are going to be there to get rid of the filibuster. What I do think, though, is going to happen is um, that the Dems will completely maximize to the extent possible the use of the reconciliation process, which Bernie Sanders can use in the budget committee, which is the committee that can do it. The budget process um, is actually exempt from the filibuster because of a, a, a Senate rule called uh, budget reconciliation to make sure that the government doesn't shut down all the time because of the filibustering of the budget. And Bernie Sanders is going to maximize how much that reconciliation process can be used so that the, the Dems are probably going to be able to achieve a, a fair amount um, of, uh, um, of of their agenda through through um, uh, spending and through um, uh, tax reform, which can be done through the reconciliation process. And I think you'll see a lot of that on, on a straight partisan vote, which well, is I, not filibusterable. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit, too, because, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, on Friday, the uh, President Biden had, in response to questions about COVID, uh, had been asked specifically, do you, did he think that the Senate should or would use uh, reconciliation 
to move forward a COVID package? And his answer was effectively, it has to get done. Uh, he doesn't say that he wants to see it done with reconciliation yet. But uh, So do you think that that, can be ex- that that reconciliation could be expanded? I, I, I've seen Democrats float it for the COVID relief. Uh, the Atlantic had called for it potentially to even include things like voting rights. Uh, do you think with Bernie Sanders being on that, that that's a real possibility? Or is it going to be more limited the way it has been in the past? Well, I, I mean, the COVID relief will definitely be done that way because it, it falls within the traditional rules of budget reconciliation. It's a straight up spending item, right? So um, the the idea of giving money to individuals or giving money to state governments so that they can um, help help distribute the vaccine or things like that, anything that's just a straight appropriation line item is is actually well within the accepted use of reconciliation. So, so that's an example where absolutely that's going to get done on a partisan basis. And if you're going to see any changes from um, Biden's proposal, um, they're going to be much more in the in the Sanders direction than in the Republican direction. And, and that's going to pass. And it, it may be slowed down until March. I don't know that it's going to get done in January or February because the there's there's limits to the number of times per year that budget reconciliation can be used. And so so it's going to have to be part of a bigger budget bill. They're not probably ready to move ahead with budgets for all the departments yet. But um, but they'll get that done within the next six, seven weeks. And and um, yeah, every bit of that's going to get enacted, whether there's a single Republican vote uh, or not. Um, and in fact, to the extent that it seems like um, Republicans are being uncooperative in, in other areas and just trying to obstruct as much as possible, um, I think that does in, in, that will that will be met with the reaction of um, Sanders fairly gleefully um, expanding the use of, of reconciliation as much as possible. We, you know, I don't know about voting rights. I don't know if that would be possible. But I think areas where it could be possible, you know, we talked about the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Typically, things like minimum wage would be seen as not subject to reconciliation because it doesn't directly affect a, a government um, spending item or a government revenue item. But but it could be argued, for instance, that um, you know raising the minimum wage means that um, people who work will be earning more and won't be reliant um, on, on programs like food stamps or Medicaid or things like that. And so that, that does um, affect the federal budget. And I, I, I would actually expect to see some expansive use of those kinds of arguments um, for what kinds of things could qualify um, to go through the reconciliation process. So as we're talking about reorganization, as we're talking about the reconciliation process, uh, where Bernie Sanders is a little bit in in the driver's seat for once, there's obviously the other uh, kind of big and yet uh, minor story of Senator Patrick Leahy's health. because this is kind of a subthread to this. He was taken to the hospital this past Tuesday. And of course, because we have this balanced Senate, as you mentioned a minute ago, one where maybe we're going to have to see a lot of budget reconciliation used to get these big items done, one where we might have to see uh, committees not playing their normal role, uh, which is usually a big one in both the Senate and the House as things move forward. So if Leahy can't be there, is going to be out, which, as a matter of fact, is important to note, um, it could could very well change or tip the balance of power in the Senate, especially since Leahy is from Vermont. So you already have this precarious situation going on. We've been talking about that in terms of the rules. We've been talking about that in terms uh, of the filibuster. What do you does what does Senator Leahy's um, uh, health problems? What, what what level of complexity does that add to the situation? Do you think? 
I think it's a big, big deal. Um, let me first, though, correct one other thing or respond to one other thing. The budget process, I think the, the committee the committee process actually, I think, will work in more or less the normal way now because they did reach this, um, they did reach an organization deal. So McConnell, McConnell he backed, backed down. down. He, he, he stopped yeah, filibustering. He, he, let, he let the committees organize. The deal that they adopted, which is the same deal that was adopted in 2001 when they had a 50-50 Senate, says that... Um, the, there's equal numbers of committee members um, on every committee. The Dems will have the chair on all the committees because the vice president has the tie-breaking vote. But um, that if there's a 50-50 split vote on a committee, um, including if, if all the votes come from Republicans, um, that will be enough to send a bill up to the floor. So it's it's a power-sharing agreement that actually will preserve the role of committees and in, in some ways give um, the minority party um, Additional more power. influence. Yeah, additional power through the committee process than what they'd usually get. So I think we will see that stuff all working normally. Um, but uh, but with Leahy, yeah, I mean, it, everything depends on him showing up for work. It, it, and, you know, this I, I saw this issue. It came to my and again, attention. He's 80 years old. I mean, it's not as if he's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, Fe- and Feinstein's older than him. But uh, but this was in the public eye because um, the, the night that they announced that, you know, we were just talking about the chief justice is not going to preside at the impeachment. Well, the president pro tempore of the Senate which is Patrick Leahy, is going to preside at the um, impeachment. And the night that that was announced, he looked uh, uh, completely out of it. And then and then he was dragged off to the hospital just hours later. Um, so th- that was really in the, in the public glare for a little bit. Um, and it makes, me, it makes me worried because um, the Dems only have a majority because John McCain and, and John Isaacson um, could not complete the terms that they were elected to. Mm-hmm. We, we'd be in a 52-48 Republican Senate right now um, if, if those two Republicans, in McCain's case, he passed. And in uh, Isaacson's case, um, he retired for health reasons. Um, he's still alive. But uh, but they both, now we have Warnock and Kelly, who are Democrats, um, who are both elected in special elections to fill those terms. And that's what tied up the Senate. Um, in Vermont, I, I do think a Dem would probably get elected in a special election to fill Leahy's seat. But the but in the the, the problem is that in the interim, um, either in, if, if Leahy is sick and just not coming in, then the uh, Republicans have a 50 to 49 edge. Um, and if, if Leahy uh, passes or retires, um, Vermont has a Republican governor who could fill that that seat for up to six months. Now, Vermont has a short leash uh, statute mm-hmm. that requires a, a special election within six months. But that would certainly take a significant uh, That's a chunk, big chunk of the time. Of, of, of the time, yeah, and 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 you know, so well, that's I, a fourth I, you know, of a Congress. Yes, and I remember in uh, you know 2009 when um, when Obama briefly had the 60 vote filibuster proof majority, and that's when he was able to get the Affordable Care Act passed. Um, they had to wheel in uh, Ted Kennedy uh, on his hospital bed to cast that vote, and 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 maybe maybe things like that might happen. I mean, we might see the you know the Dems uh, saving all their their necessary votes for a day that they can they can wheel Pat Leahy in and he can he can make the votes. But it's uh, it really does throw a huge uh, monkey wrench, just a huge throws to chance a whole lot about what could happen in this in this Congress. Well, this brings up uh, kind of a last point before we move forward to another topic, and it got me to thinking about you know Leahy is eighty, as you mentioned a number of others older than 80. Biden, the oldest president in American history, Trump II. Um, it seems to me that we have, in in the past few decades, moved to a point where almost everyone, uh, or, or a large portion of individuals, especially in the Senate and in the presidency, are very old. I, I think once upon a time there was this thought that we were the we're always going to elect young people. You know, we we don't you know we we don't care anything about experience. 
And now we've seemed to kind of swing the other direction where we're talking about bringing people in on the gurneys to vote. Uh, why do you think that uh, that clearly I'm just going to say, why do you think boomers have been able to hold on to power so long and how do we kick them out? Yeah, that's a nice question. I mean, uh, what, well, I think in the U.S. Senate, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there was always a lot of old people in the U.S. Senate, especially but in the, the age, South. If, if you look over time, like the age has still been ticking up. Yeah. I mean, I think there used to be a Southern tradition in the Senate that they would elect them young, but then they would never, ever um, retire. Right? So yeah. the Southern senators would get seniority, which was very important to them by, by getting elected young and staying until they were old. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the baby boomers, it's a demographic bulge, right? So, I mean, I'm a member of uh, Generation X, which follows the baby boom. And just numerically, there's a lot less of us yep. um, than there and are. I'm just, the, uh, I just miss out on X. I'm a millennial. There's a few more of you guys, but, um, you know, a lot, on the younger end of your generation, people don't vote in high enough numbers, I think. Um, and so th those may be reasons why. There, it may also be that um, as as just um, running for office becomes both more expensive and uh, um, more of a full-time job that takes years because the, the campaign campaigns all start a lot earlier, maybe it's just harder for people to do that unless they're already retired from their careers and uh, economically self-sufficient. You know, there, there Maybe there may be all kinds of reasons or, or maybe, um, you know, if you look at Biden, I would say, you know, part of the reason he was the nominee and part of the reason he got uh, elected um, is that um, someone like him um, can appeal to a wider cut of the voters mm -hmm. uh, because maybe 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 the younger um, uh, younger um, Dems who, you know, maybe more. Um, you know, racially diverse, gender diverse, sexual orientation diverse. And that doesn't always sit so well with some of the older voters, you yeah. know, and you have someone, someone like Biden who can just assemble a bigger tent. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I mean, here in Ohio, not that Sherrod Brown is that old, but I think the reason Sherrod Brown is able to keep getting elected in Ohio, even after it's basically turned Republican, um, is that people have known him for a long time and that it would be, it would be hard for somebody like him um, to get elected if they were brand new on the scene. Um, and so those may all be factors. It's 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 hard to say, but it, it certainly is a problem that um, the United States government is kind of seems to be modeled now on maybe the, the Mormon temple in terms of just being a complete <laughs> gerontocracy. You know? <laughs> well, now I can hear I can, I can hear the Mormon hate mail now. Um. Yeah, yeah. I guess it works for the Mormons, but uh, I, I just couldn't think of any other examples. No, where, uh, I'm of, not going to the geritocracy. I, I, you know, I think we need to. Um, I think we definitely need to kind of patent that. We need to write a paper before this gets out, so that that can be <laughs> uh, government by Jerry. Now, before we move, move forward, I, I do have one little last uh, thing, and that is the very serious campaign that's going to be waged in Ohio because. Uh, you know, Portman is, is not coming back. He, he's not going to run for re-election. And I don't know if ever, all the listeners yet know, if you've been paying attention to the Facebook page or others, you might, but you might not. Uh, and that is that our own Michael Baranowski is going to be running as an independent in the Ohio Senate race. Uh, now, you know, you're a Kentucky guy uh, and I'm uh, an Oklahoma guy now, so we can't vote for him. But uh, do you I mean I think maybe we might just want to say, do you think that here in uh, about two years, do you, do you, do you think that Michael's going to have any traction? Are we going to start having to kick him off the show and talk about him? What do you think? <laughs> well, I can I can vote for him. I live in Ohio. Um, oh, so that's I, right. I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. 
Yeah, I teach I teach in Kentucky. Well, actually, this semester I teach in Colorado, but uh, uh, my regular appointment is in Kentucky. But I do live in, in Ohio. And um, actually, you, I didn't know he was going to run as an independent. I had assumed he was going to run as a Dem. No, he is running specifically as an independent, and he is he's actually looking for um, some additional. He has a platform um, you can take a look at. He's already put that on the website. Uh, and no, he is he is purposely running independent because. He's also fed up with some of the things in the Democratic Party. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's not running as a Dem. Uh, he's running as an independent. Well, I have to rethink things. I was I was really prepared to join his uh, campaign when I thought he was running as a Dem, but I'm not I'm not sure I really want to join a third party campaign. Uh, so uh, I'd like to see a Dem get elected, and I, I was hoping Michael would be that uh, Dem. And I don't I don't uh, I don't really think a third party candidate is going to get elected. So um, that changes things. But yeah, uh, all I can think still, of is his still... miracle on 34th Street now, right? So for a second, right? Yeah, it, it, they're there with the judge, and he's coming in, and he says, "Well, you're only going to get two votes, right? And now that you figured." out that he's the wrong party you know well he might look at his- <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean some independents are in the um senate uh, uh bernie sanders is an independent although he ran uh, in the democratic primary for president he never he never ran as a democrat in vermont and he's not registered as a democrat and uh um uh similarly i think angus king in maine is in a similar boat um so there are some independents in the senate i remember one time uh when lisa murkowski failed to get the um get renominated as a Republican. She got primaried and defeated in the Republican primary. Um, she didn't change her registration. She called herself a Republican the whole time, but she actually had to run as a write-in candidate against an endorsed uh, Republican. And she did, she did win that way. So it's, it's, it, there's some modern um, parallels for that, but I don't, I don't know. Uh, Michael's going to have a, a tough uh, road. Um, I kind of am also quite interested in the uh, Republican side in that race because everybody seems to think that Jim Jordan is the front runner. Um, although Jordan himself just uh, announced that he's not running for it, which I yes. don't truly believe. But yeah, what, what, what do you think? You think he's he's that's? Do you believe that he's not running for it, or is he just buying time? I actually think that it probably signals that there's somebody else who's running and there's conversations there. I don't think he's so much buying time is I think it indicates that somebody that he doesn't want to run against is going to be in that race. But I'm not sure who it would be, to be real honest. But that's generally what's going on when you see that kind of maneuver. Uh, you know, you would think he'd be the front you know, runner. But you're, you're, I mean, yeah, I mean, th- maybe the Democratic Party in Ohio is a bit weaker, but not seeing that kind of deference on the Democratic side, a number of people are just saying that they're jumping into the Democratic mm-hmm. race. I, I guess not Michael, but, um, uh, you know, Representative Tim Ryan and, and uh, D- Dayton Mayor um, Nan Whaley, right. um, you know, are sort of yeah being being touted as, as you know, early, early front runners who are um, announced at this point, I would say. The Republican side, there are there's going to be a lot of contenders. There's, uh, you know, the, the congressional delegation from Ohio is 12-4 Republicans. So there's there's Jordan's just one of 12 Republican Congress members who could possibly jump into exactly. the Senate exactly. race. Yeah. Well, and, I will uh, say they're, that... They're, oh, I'm so sorry. Finish, finish. I, I, yeah. And, and also uh, Mandel, who's run for that Senate seat a few times before, he might try it again. So I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know why Jordan would back down. I It seems like the Trump wing of the Ohio... Republicans is pretty strong, and he's the he's certainly the the leader of that wing in this state. So I, I don't really I was mis- I thought it was mysterious why he was so quick to say he wouldn't run. Yeah, well, I would like to tell anybody uh, listeners if you're interested, uh, Mike would love to hear from you. He really is taking a serious campaign on. Uh, he is he, he's going to be moving forward with this. And if you'd like uh, to hear from him, or if you would like to find out more about getting involved with his campaign. 
Um, you can reach him at Mike at politicsguys.com. Uh, uh, now, for us, though, we need to take another break, Ken. And when we come back, uh, we're going to take a look at Biden's executive actions. And we're going to see if I can get you riled up a little bit. But we're going to do that in just a minute when we come back from this short break. Okay, so, uh, Ken... And before we uh, stopped for break, I was saying that we we're going to come back and we were going to be chatting about executive actions. So I've been doing a little bit of math. I'm a presidential scholar. This is this this is my you know this is my bag of words. We do constitutional stuff. That's yours, law. Uh, so Biden is currently at 45 uni- unilateral executive actions and 35 executive orders by my count. Now I might be off one or two because you know things come out. Um, but even I mean even if I'm off just one or two. That is the most for any modern president by this point in their presidency. As a matter of fact, uh, it, it, it takes it all the way back. Now, I think that a lot of people might say, well, that's kind of shocking. It's not so shocking that presidents want to do this. It might be shocking on this volume, right? Presidents have long wanted to use executive actions to bypass Congress. I mean, that, that's one of the areas, uh, that's what my book covers, as a matter of fact, only in terms of communication. Now, Biden doesn't really have full control in Congress, right? He has this whole weird power sharing agreement that we've been talking about in the Senate. And so he's trying to advance his his agenda. But for for you, I'm curious what your take on this is. I'm going to kind of already just let my my position out of the bag. Doesn't that make all of this cry for unity kind of a farce? I mean, if if you're going to take 35 unilateral executive actions, 35 executive orders, if you're just going to come out, like what's the point of even talking about Unity. If you wanted unity, you would have had delib- some kind of deliberate action uh, to move through Congress, even though it's difficult. So really, what we see here is just that both parties, they hate presidential powers when they don't wield it, right? So I, I hammered Republicans for four years during the Trump administration uh, because they were constantly uh, talking about how th- this was now a constitutional move, that Trump needs to make these moves forward. And, and that was a flip on their position. And now I'm going to come after, uh, come after you and Democrats and say, look, come on, the, 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 you know, Biden has outdone even Trump and, and he's outdoing any other uh, uh, candidate. Isn't this just an example of how both parties are just they don't care about uh, proper constraint. They just want their president in office so they can pass all these things. And in this case, after four years of Democrats complaining about executive actions, They've done more than any other presidency in history. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't agree with that. Um, so <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, good, I would answer good. it on two two levels. Uh, first, um, well, first I'll talk about the executive orders themselves, and then about the issue of unity. So. Um, the 42 executive orders that he issued, I'm not aware of a single one of them that bypasses Congress. Um, you know, I think substantially all of them are, are, are doing things like um, calling on his um, cabinet secretaries to issue reports about this, that or the other thing, which is one of the president's core enumerated powers. He's only got about five enumerated powers um, in Article two of the Constitution. And, and one of them is to get uh, written opinions from cabinet secretaries. And, and that's immigration what enforcement policy for one, uh, uh, a census issue for another, Keystone Pipeline for another, uh, regulatory review. I mean, a number of those are things that you would normally send through Congress, but president after president after president just simply kicks the ball down the road. I mean, so what do you think about? I mean, so I, I, maybe I'm interrupting you too quickly, but you say, oh, well, he's not really bypassing Congress, but he's bypassing Congress the same way that other presidents have. 
Well, you might say that about a tiny handful of these 42 orders, but you were sort of using the number 42 as if it's a big deal. But it is. And, I mean, it, you know, it, I it's, think... it's a historically the biggest ever. Yeah, but only like three or four of those 42 even implicate the subject that you're raising, which is, you know, is this something that Congress should be doing? Whereas, you know, maybe 30, 35 or more of those 42 orders don't uh, in any way implicate Congress's powers. So you don't um, think so, it's weird at so, all? You don't think it's weird at all? That even Donald Trump and on average you have four to five in this first number of days uh, and then you see this giant blip and you hit 42 and you're going to say, well, but they don't matter enough to count. I guess that's that seems like I don't know. We No, I'm not saying they don't matter enough. I'm saying they're actually core exercises of what should be the president's power and wouldn't be issues for Congress. Like um, like if if the if the if the uh, if the president um, uh, directs the national instructs the director of national intelligence to prepare a national intelligence estimate on the security implications of the climate crisis, um, then literally he's just asking for a report. So why would Congress be involved in that? That that's one of the the president's um, core core enumerated powers is to ask for reports like that. If he establishes a national climate task force assembling leaders from across 21 federal agencies and departments, you know this is just within the executive branch. He's saying I want people who are my own subordinates in the executive branch to get together and talk to each other. You know wh- why why would Congress be in, involved in that? Um, you know that's what most of these orders are. So when when you're actually talking about the number 42 as if there's something strange about that. But there is, um, I think some, there's something, but there's yeah. something empirically strange about that, right? So, I mean, if, if this was the normal order of business, uh, then you would have seen at some point during history. So when you see a historical average over time, and then you see this blip on the screen to say, well, it's, it's not a normal. Well, of course it's not normal because otherwise we wouldn't have a blip on the screen. So you might say, as I, I think that you're arguing that, well, look, the content of them aren't unusual, but the, the, the number of them is certainly unusual because again, previous presidents have not even come close to this number. So if these are all exactly what other presidents would have done, well, wouldn't we have seen at least others come close to this kind of action in that amount of time? And doesn't that indicate an amount of uh, presidential energy, let's put it that way, uh, that is, is unique to the Biden in his, in his first uh, you know, month or so in office? I think it reflects the unique situation that he's he's following um, a, 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 the administration of a, a predecessor who completely tried to destroy the functioning of the government, and so he's got to he's got to actually get these government agencies functioning again, um, and so he's taking a quick uh, managerial uh, um, role to reinvigorate the executive branch and just restore normalcy there. But but most of this stuff is all just um, executive branch managerial stuff, which is necessitated by the crisis that his predecessor left to him. Most most of the Trump uh, agency heads spent four years trying to destroy the agencies that they were heading. So, yeah, he's got to, you know, kind of whip things into shape within the executive branch. But but that's substantially all that um, almost all almost all of these executive orders are doing. And if you want to talk about a few that are doing more than that, we we can talk about those. But I I do think the the number of them is really just a response to, you know, usually someone doesn't come in and find the executive branch completely broken and, and need to get it working again. So effectively, because it's perfectly broken, we, we should expect this huge number. And you think it's going to then taper off as time goes on to a more 
uh, a, a more historically traditional number, you think? Or do you think that this will continue at this rate? Well, I, I guess it depends what the this is. Um, you know, I think the, um, the the those orders that are designed to make sure that the executive branch is is able to carry out uh, Biden's policies. Um, you know, once the executive once he has control of the executive branch, I think you'll see his own cabinet secretaries um, uh, doing more, and and he won't have to do it all himself. But he doesn't have you know most of them even even seated yet, and, and things like that. So he's gotta he's gotta um, get 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 things moving in the right direction quickly. Um, also, in terms of the other ones, and I know you wanted to talk about things you know that are a little more substantive, which mm-hmm. I do think is is fair, but it's only a few of the orders. Um, you know, if, if he's if he's doing things like um, uh, which were some of the ones that you name, name again? Some of the ones that you named. Let me just go back to uh, a couple of the ones that we might take a look at uh, would include. Um, oh, what did I even? I send that and I've got to find my place again. One second. I'll talk about one while you're looking. So if he's got an order that says um, he's terminating the emergency with respect to the southern border of the United States and terminating the redirection of funds diverted to the border wall construction, you know, well, of course, the reason you don't typically see a president coming in and making an executive order like that is because their predecessor didn't illegally divert a bunch of funds to build a wall and keep keep those funds being diverted. So, so you know, Trump completely ignored Congress on, on power of the purse spending stuff which is um, Congress's core power there. And mm-hmm. so for Biden to just say that stops, I wouldn't say that that's Biden um, uh, uh, abusing his executive power in in uh, unprecedented ways. I'd say that's Biden restoring the traditional power of the purse to Congress. Okay, that's interesting. So in, in short, you see this as being Biden attempting, especially in that particular instance, to re-bolster uh, Congress. Well, on the wall, I think it's clearly that. I mean, I'm not saying that the majority of them are like that, but I think that that some of them are literally undoing illegal things that that that, uh, that Trump did. Um, you know, so um, so if Trump had a bunch of illegal executive orders that were standing, um, I would I would include the women's health one in that. That that um, Trump had an executive order that Congress never enacted that banned uh, the U.S. government funding for foreign nonprofits that perform abortions. Um, now, Congress, you know. Pr- appropriate some money for foreign aid for for health and and Congress never said this can't go to any agencies that that, that perform or promote abortions so um, Trump and Trump was not unique uh, other other Republican presidents had put in this this restriction but that's not a restriction that Congress ever put in so for 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 Biden to just say well I'm ending that restriction that's actually restoring uh, Congress's power of the purse because that wasn't something Congress legislated so I think a lot of them are along those lines too now in the long run here, doesn't this just doesn't indicate, though, that as presidents in this case are going to do and undo each other's executive actions, and as we get more and more of them, we're just going to see presidents take more and more of these actions and undoing the other ones before them. And again, the more power that we put in the, in the hands of presidents, the more of these we're going to see. So I, again, I, I think the idea, I, I, can, I am sympathetic to the argument that you're making there that says, look, you know, uh, you didn't have a guy who changed the drapes in the house and I'm taking over. You had a guy who was trying to burn down the kitchen. So I'm going to have to take some additional steps you know, <laughs> uh, uh, to maintain the house. But even still, I think that uh, I think that you downplay the fact that this is in, in many cases, you know, 12 to 15 times as many as our most 
recent presidents. And when presidents continue to want to take unilateral action, presidents who come after them will see that as a precedent to continue to up what they do uh, in an attempt to get more things done more rapidly. And I understand the political expedience of that, uh, but it's it's in a political expedience that in part, I argued uh, over the course of the last four years, allowed Donald Trump to do, I think, a lot of really crummy things. And so while in the short term, we may say, well, look, we got to have presidents who can undo the bad. If you vest that much unilateral power in presidency, and we want them to be the uh, the driving agency to get things done. That means the next time you have a bad president, they'll have that many more levers of power to pull. I really think that's a false equivalency. Trump did a lot of things that were illegal. In fact, I think in these administrative law cases, um, his 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 record in getting his administrative actions sustained in court, Trump's was less than ten percent, like like more than ninety percent of the executive orders that he gave um, and had his agencies carry out were were, were held to be illegal uh, in courts. So when Biden comes in and says. Well, we're rescinding all this illegal stuff. Um, it's it's not the same thing as as doing all this illegal stuff. Um, you could say they're both they both take the form of executive orders, but an executive order to do something illegal is just it's it's false to equiv- make an equivalency between that and an executive order to stop doing things that are illegal. I he- I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm I'm not going to attempt to defend uh, 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 Trump positions, but. I I stand by the position that suggesting that the combat for an an excess and uh, the the likelihood of illegal actions from presidency is going to is going to be fixed by investing more energy in 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 the presidency, and I I think that's a short sighted view from both parties. Uh, And I I think one of the things I'll be interested in, and then we'll need to move forward, will be to see. You know, I think if your hypothesis is correct, then we should see the the total number of actions, uh, regardless of content, begin to come down to meet kind of historic averages. And if it doesn't, then I think maybe we might have to revisit and say, well, do you you know do you do you still stand by this now that we're one year in, two years in, three years in, and and we're still saying, you know, what level of executive activity are, are we seeing take place? I mean, do you think that would at least be a fair? Uh, empirical uh, test of our of, of our differing positions. No, I don't think the number is what matters. I think the legality is what matters. And you know, I think of these forty-two executive actions that Biden has already taken. I, I can't imagine you're going to see more than half a dozen of them even challenged in court because the, you know the large majority of them are just so obviously legal and so obviously within his authority that nobody would even challenge them in court. Um, you know, you may see about a half a dozen of them challenged in court, and 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 you may even see some some courts strike down one or two of them. Um, but I, I would judge I would judge uh, Biden's commitment to the rule of law. By uh, and remember, these are all Republican courts now. Um, by by how often these Republican courts will will strike down um, Biden's executive orders compared to how often they were striking down Trump's executive orders. Okay, so I think where I'm going to you know ultimately want to leave this and kind of disagree a little bit is to say that I think that your reliance on saying that things are okay as long as they make it through uh, the courts. I I do have a fundamental disagreement there uh, because I do think that as you even if you had something, the reason that more and more things are vested in the presidency is because we've had slow presidential creep 
of power. And so, yes, I think a number of things would stand up. So while I don't disagree with what you're saying about the illegality of Trump orders, doesn't mean that I have to uh, acquiesce that just because these orders today are now being considered to either be A, the norm, B, the best things they get done, or would pass uh, what is now constitu- uh, uh, the Supreme Court's and lower courts' constitutionality, doesn't mean that it's the right political way to make things move forward, nor that it's the, the way that a, 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 a separation of power system is designed to function, and rather that, it, it, again, it's, it's simply evidence that the presidency, yeah, has more areas in which we consider uh, executive actions to be constitutional. And while, yay, I'd rather have them be part of that uh, corpus of law than not, and I in no way disagree there, that that doesn't indicate that the scope of the number of things that presidents are taking on with those executive actions are a good idea and that they aren't better handled in deliberative bodies. That's my. <laughs> yeah. but, 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 most, but most of these actions within our system of separation of powers clearly are executive actions. They're not legislative actions. I know there's a few of them that can be characterized as, as quasi-legislative, but the large majority of them couldn't even be characterized that way. Well, I'll, I'll go back just for a minute to say, for example, the, uh, the immigration changes. And of course, I want to come out. I mean, on this one, weirdly, I end up outflanking on the left, I think, uh, you know, many of our left cohorts, and that I would prefer the Biden policy. But the reason that we have this constant uh, influx and changes in in our immigration system is because we've allowed the president to be the one that dictates this because Congress continues to abdicate having a a real and meaningful immigration reform. And And they won't have a real and meaning immigration reform because they know that every time that their president gets in, that he can just snap his fingers and undo the last guy's uh, immigration policies with another executive order. And so, again, I don't disagree, uh, as you say, with that Biden uh, may be kind of writing the House. And, and, and in this case, example, I even agree with the with the outcome. But that doesn't mean that I agree with you on the idea that I'm, I'm happy that this is the, the, the track that Biden's taking. Yeah, but the I, OK, so first, I'll agree with you on half of that. I, I agree that the, the legislation, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the immigration policy executive order is, the mo- I think, the most quasi-legislative of all these orders. And I, I would agree with you that making immigration policy um, ideally should be done in Congress and, and not done in the White House. I, I agree with all that. But I think under the statutes that Congress has actually enacted and has, has charged the executive branch with enforcing, um, these, these statutes, in fact, delegate a great deal of policymaking discretion to the executive branch. So when the executive branch executes that that policymaking discretion that has been delegated to it by law, um, that's not lawless executive action. That's lawful executive action. And so, so you know, in, in, a, in a more perfect and, and, world, and there, I would agree with you, but that's where you have, yeah. that's where you have breakdown of separation of power in part because of the Mehuinian principle uh, that you have congresspersons who would rather get to to potentially pass the buck. Yeah, it's not ideal for them to pass the buck. I, I agree with you there. I'd, I'd rather see Congress legislate a solution to the DACA problem. But but the law that um, uh, Congress has actually legislated says, well, there's no special provision for these DACA people. They're deportable. But the president has discretion not to deport them. Um, and so if, if, if that's the law that the president has dealt, then um, an executive order saying, OK, I'm not going to deport them um, is, is, is lawful. And I think it's appropriate. 
Well, I see. I guess really, once again, we we uh, we come close on many things. Maybe on the appropriate part, we we disagree. Where I'd like to again see that kind of be pushed back to Congress, because until you do that, we're going to continue. I think to see uh, in the future a Republican come in and have again twice as many uh, executive actions as we saw here with Biden undoing his, pushing forward yet new things uh, that again should be should be handled in Congress, but. I think that we oh, probably before, beat before, that one to death. You, yeah. <laughs> so the one part we didn't beat to death, if you don't mind me dragging this out just sure. a minute longer, I also wanted to address your point about unity because I think part oh, of what yes, you said I, you was, know, I did bring uh, that up and I didn't give yeah. you a chance. I'm so sorry. Please respond to that <laughs> no, too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that um, uh, and I hope that um, when Joe Biden talks about unity, he's understanding it in a different sense than maybe how you were understanding it. And what what I would say is that the, the attitude that, that Joe Biden and the um, uh, Democrats in Congress, um, I think what they mean when they talk about unity um, is that they're they're going to um, uh, legislate um, policies that they think will benefit all of the American people, including um, uh, Democrats and Republicans. Um, they're going to administer those policies even handedly. So they're not going to play red states against blue states. You know, every everything that benefits anybody in one state is going to benefit everybody in another state. Um, and that they're going to be open to um, listening to arguments um, uh, from uh, Republican uh, legislators and um, and and including um, some things that those Republican legislators may suggest um, in legislation. I think I think that's the limits of, of unity and bipartisanship here. And I think the piece that's not included in that is um, that they're not going to move forward with those kinds of agendas unless the Republicans in Congress agree. I think that is not on the table here. And that's never what anybody meant by um, unity. I think, if, if, I mean, while I can get behind what you're doing, what you're saying is, is if, if you use the word unity, I think what you're really talking about is an underlying uh, constitutional principle which suggests that minorities need to have some kinds of checks on some kinds of items. Uh, and so to say that you're going to have unity, uh, but that you're going to move forward with everything regardless uh, of minority control, I, I, think that's a, I, I think that's a semantic um, wiggle room that is unfortunate. Uh, I, you know, again, I, I don't, you know, if Biden wants to move forward without including minority support on uh, all items, that's fine. But what you suggest there, I don't think that's really constitutional unity in our Manasodian system. Unity in a Manasodian system is, is you have to get minorities on board to make things go forward. And if you're not getting minorities on board to make things go forward, well, it, that's something. It's just, it, but it, it's, not uni, it's not unity in a Madisonian system, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't say it's Madisonian. I don't think it's ever been addressed to the Republicans in Congress. And and I, I think that's good. You know, I, I think when, you know, when, when Joe Biden you know, tells the public, um, I'm going to get $2,000 out there to every American and I'm going to get the COVID vaccine distributed to every American and I'm going to help the states do that in all 50 states. Um, he's trying to unify the electorate there, but not necessarily their elected representatives in, in, in Congress. So I, I think, you know, if, if the elected representatives in Congress say, well, we don't want to see Joe, Joe Biden succeed, so we're going to try to um, gridlock him as much as possible, even, even when that gridlocks um, a substantive agenda that even a lot of Republicans agree with, then I think um, Biden has to choose between, you know, so what do I want to do here? Do I, do, I want to, do I want to do things that are popular with wide segments of the country, including a lot of Republicans, 
um, or do I want to make nice with the um, uh, congressional Republicans? And um, I think he's rightly choosing to do things that will unify the electorate um, at the expense of trying to unify the, the Congress. I think it's it's full speed ahead without Republicans in Congress to the extent possible. And that, that has to be the agenda. And I'm glad to see him pursuing it. I don't mind him pursuing that. And I want to be clear. So I agree with you on that front. But I think that his his language is purposefully uh, misleading. However, I will take his purposely misleading language to the outright lies of Donald Trump. So, you know, <laughs> there is that. Uh, but no, I, you know, well, I, I hear what you're saying about the unity of individuals, uh, the unity of the electorate. Um, but, you know, clearly in the context of the way Biden's talking, He's talking about a broader, you know, governmental institutional unity. And to the extent that we, we twist that a little bit to make it fit fair. And I, I would just prefer him to say kind of like he did today when it came to COVID release. Look, we got to get this done. It's got to move forward. That's what it's got to be, as opposed to, I think, kind of using these, these multiple languages uh, uh, to move forward. But we have gone well over time, Ken. So. <laughs> It's been wonderful. And in a minute, we're going to be recording the uh, uh, the bonus show. So I want to thank all of our listeners, uh, politics guys. We love working on this show. We wouldn't be going so long and, and having a good time about it if we didn't. Uh, and so to make that possible, it's, it, it requires the support of you guys. So one of the way that you can help support the show is by subscribing to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. So does sharing episodes. So does sharing it on Twitter. So does sharing it on Facebook uh, and everywhere else you find your fake news. Uh, we also need your support. Uh, and one of the great things about being a supporter is you're going to get to have access to supporters only content. And that includes our other full length supporter show. And I just want to tell you right now, and, and Ken, Ken can agree with me, is that I think that we left like three different things off of this show. <laughs> yeah, this will be a good bonus show this week. It's going to be awesome because we're going to talk about Representative Green. We're going to talk about GameStop. We're going to, t- I mean, we, we, there was a bunch of things that we just didn't get into the show because they're just, there was too much. So if you want to be part of that, please uh, support the show now. Become a supporter of the show and get all of the benefits, including our midweek show that's going to be going on. Uh, we're going to be recording here just in a minute and will become live here on Wednesday ad free. So if you want to do that, go ahead and check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. Or you can go to the politicsguys.com slash support. Uh, so again, join me again and Ken again on Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys so that you can hear us talk about Reddit. You can hear us talk about uh, 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 lasers from space. It's going to be just an incredible show. Now, if you've got some questions, comments, corrections, or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Nathan Salznowski, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkinson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff, and we'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.